Good evening. This is the Laughing Satirist again, here to share The Pillow, a delightful satire of old age and family values, where an elderly man and his wife compete over which one can put the other into assisted living first, leaving the victor to enjoy their golden years alone. The Pillow. Louise and I had argued for years about who would go first, not die or file for divorce, but enter an institution for long-term care, leaving the survivor a few days or weeks or even years of peace. Louise, however, would not see reason. Despite my best arguments, she not only refused to consider assisted living, but even maligned me to our adult children setting me up for a sudden commitment to a single room, lift bed, and flat screen TV that was never turned off. So the day the box arrived, I suspected it was part of her scheme to declare me incompetent. Louise was out on her regular Wednesday circuit to the beautician, the podiatrist, and lunch at the club with our younger daughter, Carol. I carried the box in from the porch with some difficulty. It was about a yard long, two feet wide, and weighed more than the laundry baskets Louise made me carry up and down from the basement. When I shook it, nothing inside moved. I set it on the kitchen table to open it, but the metal brads would not come out. While I was cutting them out with a paring knife, Louise and Carol returned, still flushed from the club's house chardonnay. What are you doing, Louise cried. You'll ruin it. I'll watch him, Mother, while you go to the bathroom, Carol said, taking the knife away. Score another one for Louise. An incident with a knife would be powerful evidence at a competency hearing. It was no surprise to me that Carol had gone through two husbands with hardly any alimony or child support to show for the experience. Let me do that, Louise said upon her return. She found a screwdriver in one of her secret drawers, pried out the brads, and opened the box. Inside, wrapped in plastic so thick that my knife had barely lacerated it, was a pillow. Here, she said, use it for your nap. Did he eat his lunch, Mother? Carol asked. On days Louise is out, I open a can of beef barley soup she always leaves, smear some inside a bowl, and pour the rest down the disposal. Why is it so heavy, I said to distract them. Magnets, Louise said. They realign your spine as you sleep. I didn't know the human spine was magnetic, I said. It's the latest medical breakthrough, Louise snapped. They were looking at me with the expectant stare of prison guards, hoping the prisoner will resist. So I lugged the pillow upstairs where Louise stuck it into a pillowcase. Ow, she said as she punched it to fluff it. She had hit one of the magnets. When I lay down, it felt like a log under my neck. I tried to turn it around so the softer side was up, but she turned it back. The magnets have to be under your neck to work, she said. So I closed my eyes, thinking I would turn it around again as soon as she was out of the room. Instead, I fell into a deep, dreamless sleep like the afternoon naps I took decades ago after cutting the grass and drinking two beers with lunch. 
When I awakened, I felt so refreshed that I slipped downstairs and was boiling water for tea before Louise and Carol could change the subject of their conversation from me to the disagreeable men Carol was meeting on the internet. I don't know how much longer I can handle him by myself, Louise was saying. If the cup had not rattled in the saucer as I slipped into my den, they would not have known I was there. Don't spill, Walter, she called after me. Don't live is what she meant. I spend many hours in my den, resting my hands in the indentations on my blotter and trying to remember whether any of the people in the photographs on the wall are still alive. There is a dark stained area where I place my saucer. I was staring at a photograph of a man who could have been me receiving a plaque from another man who may once have been important. As I tried to remember, something trembled at the edge of perception, like a water strider on a pond. I looked down at my desk. Nothing. Then to my right, it moved again. Leaning forward, I saw the paper clips in the magnetic holder quiver. Suddenly, one leapt out and stung my ear like an angry insect. Ow, I cried. He spilled something, Louise exclaimed, and rushed to my aid. Look, mother, he cut himself, Carol said, turning my head to the side. She dabbed my ear with a tissue. He never cuts his fingernails, Louise said. She hurried off for scissors and a nail file, leaving the rest of the afternoon to grow cold with the tea. In the evening, when it was time for me to go to bed, Louise placed my neck on the hard part of the pillow as firmly as an executioner, positioning a murderer's neck on the guillotine. I don't think it's working, Mother, Carol said. We have 30 days to return it, Louise said, turning off the light. Have you ever returned from war by sea when the waves that were so black at your crossing were now turquoise and laced with foam? Our destroyer escort was as low in the water as a Venetian galley. Blue water broke over her bow, and when the California hills rose on the horizon, the sailors danced on the deck and cheered. For the first time since we had moved into the condo, I heard the magic singing of a bird through the window. I got up very carefully so that Louise would not spoil it and went to the window to touch the warm place the sun had made on the shade. I still remember those huge breakfasts we had on bright Saturday mornings long ago and tiptoed downstairs to the kitchen. Photos of Zoe, Carol's teenage daughter, and our older daughter Denise and her children in Buffalo, and our son Louis and his wife Grace and their children in Los Angeles shuddered as I opened the refrigerator door. Inside, it was emptier than when I was a bachelor. No eggs, no sausages, no bacon, not even a loaf of blue-edged bread. What are you doing in there, Louise demanded. Surprised, I let the door swing shut. The magnet holding Zoe smacked me in the cheek. As I peeled it off, the other magnets let go, hitting me in the forehead and cheeks, while the West Coast and Buffalo grandchildren fluttered down like cards swept from the table by a losing player. Now look what you've done, she said. I was just looking for breakfast. Here, she said, I'll do it. 
She reached into a cupboard for raisin bran and then stepped over the pictures to the refrigerator for the almond milk. We don't even have any eggs, I said. Eggs don't have a long refrigerator life, she replied, backing me to the kitchen table and setting raisin bran soaked in a tan fluid before me. If I had not been starving, I would have let it go. Let's go to Denny's, I said, remembering a name we had heard on TV. She looked at me as if I had suggested we go to the Amazon and eat live insects. I walked around her to the sink and poured the cereal and almond milk into the disposal. I'm sure you'll enjoy it, dear, I said. They're one of Oprah's sponsors. Two hours later, found us seated at a Formica table at Denny's, me admiring a huge plate of scrambled eggs, sausages, and pancakes, and Louise sniffing a glass of prune juice as if it might contain strychnine. Just as I cut into the sausage with my knife and fork, my spoon hit me in the glasses. What have you done now, Louise cried. Then her utensils unwrapped themselves from her napkin and flew at my head. Stop that, she said. Everyone's looking at us. The only one looking at us was a four-year-old in the booth behind her who had struggled free of his mother. Don't stare, his mother said. You don't have to take that from her, bud, I said to the boy, and settled into the best breakfast I had had in years. All the way home, Louise talked about the risks of speaking to other people's children. It was coming back to me that there had been a time I could ignore her. So I took the newspaper and went to my den while she disappeared into the basement. When she emerged an hour later, she was carrying our son Lewis' old football helmet. Like many adult children, Lewis had left his stuff in our basement, including a complete set of college textbooks that had never been opened. If you keep on bumping into things, she said, you have to wear this. The pen holder on my desk had turned and was pointing at me. Let me try it on, I said. It was a pretty good fit and only made a little thock when the pen struck the side. Isn't that better, Louise said in a distant voice. Let's go to the club tonight for dinner, I replied. We made an unusual entrance. I in a houndstooth sport jacket, bow tie, and football helmet. Louise in her usual vintage smock and Carol in something sequined that emphasized her paunch. Undulating so light flashed from every jeweled piercing, granddaughter Zoe manipulated her phone to avoid eye contact with any of the startled diners. Would we like to check the football helmet, sir? The maitre d' inquired. We would not, I replied. As we made our progress through the dining room, several thoughts on the helmet confirmed that I had made the right decision. Grandpa, Zoe said, that woman threw a knife at you. Turning, I saw Dorothy Cuddlesworth Ames, doyen of a constricting circle of the city's wealthiest widows, holding a fork in her right hand and staring at the empty fingers of her left. I didn't know you were a southpaw, Dorothy, I said to allay her embarrassment. After we were seated, our waiter removed Mrs. Ames' steak knife from the back of my helmet. You reach a time in life when your hearing is not good, and wearing a football helmet does not improve communication. Perhaps I was a little quick to order a drink. 
about the last clear memory I have of that evening. I, Louise and Carol followed my lead, however, and soon I was amusing Zoe by moving her silverware around by tilting my head. Dinner itself was something of a trial. A straw, of course, solved the difficulty with the line, but I had not yet developed the fine muscle skills necessary to insert food through a face mask. To the horror of my wife and daughter, several mouthfuls ended up in my napkin. Zoe, however, looked on with the same curious expression with which she watched the dog whisper. Departing, I received a standing ovation from the other diners. By the time the valet parking had found Carol's van, Zoe had reabsorbed herself in text messaging, and Louise and Carol were mouthing to each other that they would talk as soon as I was in bed. In a heightened state of awareness after two glasses of wine and a cup of coffee through a straw, I decided to forestall their plans. Have we spoken yet about triangulation? It's a pejorative term in psychology to describe one member of a family confiding something nasty to another about a third family member, the target, so that the target is isolated and unaware that he is the victim until it's too late. Louise had practiced this art so successfully upon me with Carol that I would have been sent off that very night to assisted living, if only she could have persuaded our other children to join her. Thanks to the time difference, however, whenever Louise called our son Louis in Los Angeles, he was into his second martini and too distracted to follow her argument. Although in our time zone, our older daughter, Denise, was unresponsive after we had refused to pay for her country club bills and renew the lease on the Lexus. At 11 o'clock that night, when I thought Louis would be getting his second wind, I called him on his cell from our bedroom phone. It's your mother, I said. I'm afraid she's starting to lose it. I'd like to help, Dad, but I just can't leave Grace and the kids out here without them going crazy in the malls. Can't Carol handle it? She's in denial, Lewis, I confided, pausing for dramatic effect. Could you call Denise? I do it myself, but she's been uncommunicative after I refused to pay for her last divorce. So that's how Denise received a call from her California at 2 a.m. that her mother was going over the edge. Physicians tell me there is no one more intransigent about a declining mother's care than an out-of-town daughter, racked with guilt for having deserted her mother years before. Denise was able to find a live-in for the kids, a kennel for the dogs, a pint of vodka for the plane, plus make a 10 o'clock flight here the next morning. I can't tell you how exciting it was for me to witness her arrival in an airport limousine, just as Louise and Carol returned from lunch at the club. Before Louise was out of the bathroom, Denise had reignited one of the nastiest sibling rivalries of the last century. Of course you don't see it, she said in a savage whisper to Carol, just as the toilet flushed, announcing their mother's imminent return. You're too close to her. I was a little surprised that Denise had not commented on my football helmet, 
but I always stay out of the way when my wife and daughters are screaming at each other. Have I mentioned that after her third divorce, Denise let herself go and outweighed her mother and sister together by at least 100 pounds? Perhaps it was intimidation, or perhaps Denise reassuming her role as big sister and mother's protector after a lapse of 40 years, but the battle ended in compromise. Louise and the girls got into the airport limousine for a tour of local assisted living facilities. They returned after dark with a gripping story of having toured all the best units, several boxes of Chinese food, and a plea for my credit card to pay the limousine driver. Royal Oaks is by far the nicest, Carol announced, but they won't have a double unit open until someone dies. From everything I had heard, death frequently stalked the corridors of Royal Oaks. I didn't know we were looking for a double unit, Carol, I said to distract Denise from staring at my helmet. Someone has to be here for you and the kids. That's right, Carol, Denise agreed, dumping most of the cashew chicken over a huge pile of rice on her plate. What do you have to drink with this, Dad? I found an ancient bottle of Saint-Emilion behind the mayonnaise, much too good for the occasion, but I wanted to keep her on my side. The next morning, after breakfast at Denny's, we checked Louise into a Royal Oak single. I'll bet she appreciated that last full breakfast. We left her arguing with a big-boned woman in hospital blues about the best time to start her on Depends. And here the story might have ended. All the years of waiting made by solitude even sweeter. Carol would arrive around noon several days a week to take me to the club for lunch, or to drop Zoe off while she toured local spas and tanning salons with my credit card, and we always had dinner together Friday at the club. Every Sunday, we would visit Louise for lunch. She developed quite a taste for cashew chicken, although I never did find the right wine. One afternoon, however, when I returned from the barber shop and went upstairs for my nap, my pillow was missing. I hoped Carol had not tried to wash it. Carol, I called down. What did you do with my pillow? There's been a recall, she said. I sent it back. The next few days passed like one of those episodic dreams that distort your sleep and you arrive, arise achy and sticky with sweat. There have been reports of serious injuries, Carol explained when I told her to get it back. At least you won't have to wear that ridiculous helmet anymore. What do you say when the fatal diagnosis is uttered, and all that is left is to call hospice and pull down the shades? At our last dinner together at the club, I spilled my water twice, could not taste the fritters Diablo, and nearly aspirated my straw. I lost it during our exit when I saw several diners waving metallic objects at me, as if to deflect the evil eye. Chill, Gramps, Zoe said. They're taking pictures with their cells. In my weakened state, I did not realize Carol was driving us to Royal Oaks instead of back to the condo. We're so lucky to have found a double, she explained with a bright, deceptive smile. They moved Mother in today, and I have your pajamas and socks in the trunk. So, wrapped tightly around the waist in plastic, I spent the first of many nights at Royal Oaks. 
A slow decline is like entering detox with no hope of ever escaping the addiction, where all the shakes and tremors lead to is an even more painful bondage. Who, oh who, will hear my cry and come to my succor? Je suis le prince d'Aquitaine à la tour Abeli. Perhaps the worst part was reacquiring a certain intimacy with Louise, who slept in a small bedroom like mine on the other side of our common bathroom. To pass the time, I pressed my call button whenever she pressed hers to see whose caretaker would arrive first. If my caretaker, Teddy, was first, Louise would have to give me one of her plastic cups of warm cranberry juice. If her caretaker, LaRonda, won the race, then I had to give Louise one of my Pop-Tarts. The shortest response time was 20 minutes, the longest two and a half hours. When I commented favorably on Teddy's performance to the charge nurse, she reassigned LaRonda, leaving Teddy our only caretaker. So much for rating employees by performance. Unlike the condo in the old days, I could not evade the beach barley soup or boiled zucchini by pouring it down the disposal. Teddy always sat beside me and poked a spoon in my mouth mouth whenever I came up for air. Gotta eat this ship, man, he said. We catch all sorts of ship when somebody starves. As you might have expected, Louise offered no sympathy. Her presence was like the television, which was never turned off. We were just another ancient couple dozing through empty days, while at night the staff wheeled huge squeaking machines and gurneys through the halls to keep us from going to sleep. Like King Richard imprisoned in the tower, I waited for a minstrel to pass who would recognize my song and not betray me to my captors. My only relief was an occasional visit from Zoe, who'd learned to drive my old Mercedes and was teaching me to surf the web on her phone to obtain my credit card number for gas. Let's do eBay today, Gramps, she said, moving in for the kill. What would you like to bid on? Pillows, I whispered, feeling that wild surge of hope that only someone at the edge of death can know when the doctor suggests an experimental therapy. What kind, she asked. There are 9,738 listed. Use magnetic as a modifier, dear, Louise suggested, her first coherent statement in months. Zoe found them in a nanosecond. New or used, Gramps? Try original, I said. And that is how Zoe got my credit card number and I started on my return to life. The next few days seemed endless, punctuated only by calls from my credit card company, asking if I had really ordered six pairs of cross-training shoes or Grand Theft Auto 4th Edition. I was so weak that Teddy despaired of borrowing enough for child support to stay out of jail. You gotta take care of your friends, man, he would say, peeling me off the toilet in the morning. Can't be here for you if you ain't here for me. His response time had slowed to just over an hour. In the corridor outside our room, I heard the aides talking about hospice and how long it would be until they had to move Louise back to a single 
and clean the place up for a new couple. I had not bothered to put on my glasses the day that Zoe arrived with the pillow. This is the right one, Gramps, she said, dropping it on my chest. It was as heavy and inflexible as those lead aprons dentists drape you with when they x-ray your teeth. Yes, dear, yes, I whispered. Just place it under my head. Instead, she tucked the pillow under her arm. I could not see her clearly, but her head seemed curiously enlarged. When she bent over to kiss me goodbye, the procedure was interrupted by the face mask on her helmet. Instead of leaving me the pillow so I could return to life, she took it for herself so she could audition for American Idol. Oh, yes, the minstrel had recognized my song and had sold me back to the evil prince. Teddy, I whispered when he came to bind me up for the night. You into eBay? Whoa, he said. What I going to eBay with, man? Go to Pillows Magnetic Original. I'll give you my card number. Pay whatever they ask. You got to wait till the end so they don't bin them up on you, he said, confirming my respect for his genius. I let him order a second football helmet for himself to reinforce our bonding. At last, the faithful minstrel had heard my lament, and the door to my prison creaked open. The day of my release, Teddy appeared with a pillow, bent me forward, and placed the hard part under my neck. Yes, I cried, feeling the rich surge of life return. One good night's sleep and I'm free. You want your helmet, man, he asked. Tomorrow, when I'm ready for the club. You're going to be quite the couple, he said. No, I don't think Louise will be up to it. She loves her pillow, man. When I give it to her, she says she ain't never felt better. You gave Louise a pillow, I exclaimed, and I get her a helmet, too. Joe Namath, number 12, just like you. From Louise's room, I could hear the remote control for the television spitting on her bedside table before dropping onto the floor. The pillow's reach was spreading like a fungus. Don't wait up for me tonight, Walter, she called. Carol and I are going out. This story was written by Fred McGavern and appeared in Strangely Funny Two and a Half. I suppose that's available on Amazon. Everything else seems to be. McGavern's website might help. It's www.fredmcgavern.com. Next time, I'll read Lawyer Assisted Suicide, an expose of a practice to facilitate the passing of wealth from one generation to another in jurisdictions where the right to die is still frowned upon. Until then, Good night.